this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I'm excited about this one. I have Ian Pritzker today with me today. He is the author of Inventing Bitcoin and the CTO of Swan Bitcoin. We're going to talk about more about both of those. Um, and so, Jan, what we'd like to do when we get people on the show is before we get into their specific project or maybe the things that they're working on, we'd like to get a sense of how they got into this world. And so with your focus on Bitcoin and with it being around now for over 10 years, we'd love to hear a little bit more of your background, how you got into the world of Bitcoin. What was your, I don't necessarily like to hit on the when Bitcoin moment as I air quote that, but what about the underlying fundamental kind of underpinnings of the technology of decentralized and distributed networks really got you into this world? What really excited you? Sure, yeah, so uh, thanks for having me on, David. I got into Bitcoin. Uh, I originally heard about it in 2011, um, but I didn't really understand what it was. And um, you know, I've been in the startup world for about 20 years. I've been building startups of uh, of all kinds, um, and I kind of was very busy with a lot of startups. 2011, 2013, I heard about it again. It wasn't really until 2016 um, that it finally stuck for me. And I have to say that both of the first two times that I encountered it, I kind of heard of it as a, you know, some kind of open source payment system. Um, and I didn't really dig into what it was. And uh, I basically kind of brushed it off because I was just too busy working on startups. And in 2016, I ended up watching my first Andreas Antonopoulos video. And um, Andreas has a video called uh, Currency Wars, which was very uh, insightful. And, and it really talked about the problem with money. And in 2016, he talked a lot about you know what had been going on in 2013 with the um, Greek and Cypriot bailouts, uh, where basically people were uh, taking haircuts on their bank accounts, and there was uh, bank runs, and ATM machines were shut down. And he was talking about this idea of capital controls. And uh, you know, I grew up in America, but I actually came from the former Soviet Union, so uh, I came over in 1989. And um, when we came over. Uh, I didn't really know I was a kid, so I didn't know what happened with our money. Um, but after I watched that video, I started asking my questions, uh, asking my parents about what happened to our money. And it turned out that we were unable to leave with our money intact. We actually had to exchange our Soviet rubles for US dollars, and the government only allowed us to keep $100 per person. And that's um, when it struck home to me that what had been invented with Bitcoin wasn't just an interesting decentralized technology, which is how I was looking at it you know, uh, going, into the, going into the investigation. Um, but it was actually money. It was, it was a new type of money that was um, basically without somebody in charge. And that meant that you could easily port it out of a country like the Soviet Union. You know, if we had had Bitcoin 25 years prior, we could have potentially have just left with that Bitcoin in our heads instead of being essentially stripped of whatever little wealth we did have. Mm. And that's when I really, it struck home to me that there was something more to this than just the technology. And, you know, being a technology guy, I, I obviously was excited about the decentralization aspects and how how did somebody figure out a system where all these computers could essentially coordinate without anybody being in charge was a real feat uh, and very cool. So I probably spent the next year from you know summer of 2016 to 2017 uh, just getting really deep into the whole crypto and blockchain space and uh, researching all the different uh, things that were going on. And came out of that kind of circling back and coming back to Bitcoin after understanding that 
the decentralization properties of Bitcoin were kind of unique um, and very difficult to reproduce because of this, you know, sort of unique circumstances it was born in. And um, that's when I decided uh, to just spend, you know, I, I was spending three to four hours a day just listening to podcasts and reading about economics, which I had you know, no education on economics going into Bitcoin. Um, and finally coming out of it around 2018, deciding that I had to work on uh, Bitcoin full time. That's amazing because what I've noticed is that you cited that prior you're, you didn't have much of a background with economics and that when you enter this world, for instance, I didn't necessarily understand game theoretics or I had a very base level understanding of statistics or I had a very base level of human psychology. Things are all that I picked up either through institutional education or just kind of habitual. But when you enter into this world, it is multidisciplinary. It basically means that it can't just be about the Bitcoin economics. It has to be about the the psychology level. It has to be about the game theoretics. It has to be about many different things because at the end of the day, we are you know, basically looking at the reinvention of money. And so with that becomes, it's not just you know, kind of code. There is a massive amount of psychology oh, yeah. that goes with that. Yeah, um, and religion. I would even say. I mean, yes. mysticism. I mean, look at our look at our money. It says in God we trust for a reason, right? Uh, <laughs> right. And you know, from looking at monies going way back into our history as humans, we you know we've bartered things like barley to seashells. You know, how do you actually migrate to um, something like an electronic form of of payment uh, such as Bitcoin? And so those evolutions take time and to understand how those happen, you have to really do a lot of homework, if you will. And so I find that I find that really interesting. All of this led you to writing a book. I'm going to talk about the book first, and then we're going to talk about Swan, uh, because Swan is super interesting. But the book is also super interesting. And I commend you for writing a book during this time period. So the book, Inventing Bitcoin, um, I want you to talk a little bit about it, but I thought this was really interesting at the very beginning of it, um, in your introduction. And I think this leads you to be able to really discern a lot of what you've kind of put together. You wrote, my goal is simply to tickle your brain and give you a taste of the computer science and economic game theory that make Bitcoin one of the most interesting and profound inventions of our time. And so give us a little bit of a background about the book. You know, how did it come about? And then I really want you to delve into this idea of profound inventions of our time, the most interesting and profound invention of our time. You know, there's been a lot. <laughs> there's there been, been a lot. There's been things like the wheel and there's yeah. been things like the, the telephone. There's been things like the airplane. Oh, when I say travel. our time, I mean, you know, the modern era. But right. Um, yeah. So the book kind of came out from uh, really a, st- a series of talks I started giving. Uh, when I, you know, when I left uh, my prior startup was Reverb uh, in 2018. I, I left Reverb to work on Bitcoin full time. I didn't know what I was going to do exactly. Uh, I started giving talks at high schools uh, because a lot of my friends, my wife is a, is a high school teacher, a lot of my friends are high school teachers, and they all had you know various career days or like just kind of learning days for their math students. They asked me to come in and talk about Bitcoin because, of course, all these high schoolers have heard about it. They're interested in, in what it means. A lot of them have misconceptions about it. 
I started putting together a bunch of notes um, for these talks, and I don't, I'm not good at outlines. I just like to brain dump and start writing you know, thoughts down, uh, almost essay format. And as I started doing that, I just realized that I'd written all these essays, and they started connecting for me in my head as a, a structure of a book. And I also started recognizing that you know, I, I was going out and giving these talks, and I was talking a little bit about the history of money, stuff you mentioned, um, which was very interesting because for high school students, uh, you know, understanding like the the that slaves were traded for glass beads, for example, um, is a real revelation because once they hear about this idea, it's like okay, people can, you know, people thought these glass beads were really unique, and then all of a sudden we were able to mass produce them, and we were able to buy slaves with them. So it, it, it they learn about the value of money and how important it is for that money to be scarce and truly um, not under anybody's control. Otherwise, somebody can just go and produce as much of it as they want. And high school students intuitively understand supply and demand from that. You just explain, you know, <laughs> here was a thing that was valuable and then all of a sudden it became mass produced. And what do you think happened to its value? Well, of course, it lost it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I talked a lot about that with high school students and, and they're very intuitive about that. And then I talk a little bit about how Bitcoin actually works and how it's different from the money that we know um, and, and how the technology actually makes Bitcoin work and, and reinforces those claims that it makes. You know, people say things about Bitcoin like it's scarce. There's only 21 million Bitcoins. Um, how do we know that's true, right? Uh, is that just a piece of code or how does that actually work? So that's what led me to really write the book. And I recognize that when you have conversations with, about Bitcoin with people, a lot of, there's a lot of, um, let's call it baked in bias, right? People have status quo bias. They're used to the money they know and love. Um, even though, to be clear, the money that we all know and love is really was born in 1971 with the end of the gold standard. Uh, so prior to that, it was a little bit different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, people have a hard time letting go of these old ideas about money. So oftentimes, if you start talking to Bitcoin uh, about Bitcoin with somebody, it's a little bit confrontational. Like, well, why doesn't it do this? Why is it so slow? Or why is it, you know? And then what they really need is time to digest. Because you're right, Bitcoin is very multidisciplinary. There's math, there's physics, there's computer science, uh, economics, game theory, psychology, religion, all of these things factor into Bitcoin. And uh, being able to digest it in a book form helps you really just form your own opinions and you know, kind of process it and then have that conversation. Mm-hmm. That's really why I started uh, writing the book and giving it out to people as educational material because I want people to be able to um, have time to think through before they start asking questions. Right. So let's get into this. You know, I've had my Bitcoin journey for the last four or five years, as many people know out there. And obviously, I started the show a year and a half ago to educate, provide educational content for family offices and institutional investors about Bitcoin and digital assets. And so let's get into the, some of the questions that I receive. And you know, I think you're fairly well able to answer these quickly. Um, I just think it's really interesting for people to listen to this. One of the main questions I get is dilution. Bitcoin is open source. Uh, Effectively, people think that it can be copied and replicated. And so the 21 million hard cap is basically nonsensical. What do you think about that? Well, there's two answers to that. One is really the easiest answer. If people understand how markets work is, you know, look at the markets, right? So uh, there are over 5,000 coins that are being tracked on coin market cap. Um, so if those things are actually dilutionary to Bitcoin, they should have some of its value, right? Uh, but as we find out, Bitcoin today, I don't know what the current number is, but let's call it 160 billion of market cap, right? Um, is, is just, you know, head and shoulders above everything else, right? Like the next 30 coins combined don't even touch Bitcoin's liquidity. 
the number 10 coin, the number 10 highest market cap coin has 0.5%. That's 0.5% of Bitcoin's daily volume. So what are these coins? Well, they are ways for people who are professional traders to accumulate more Bitcoin. Uh, if you talk to any professional tra tra trader in cryptocurrency, they're either accumulating more US dollars or more Bitcoin. Um, nobody is accumulating other coins unless they plan to sell them for Bitcoin in the future, right? So what happens with uh, people entering into these markets is they're basically being misled by these you know, professional traders on the other side of the trade, and uh, they're losing a lot of money. Um, you know, the way that money works is it aggregates towards one thing. And this is something we learn from uh, the history of money, right? We know that um, gold was the predominant monetary uh, unit in the world until fiat money came around. And the reason for that was through uh, individual action, right? People decide what, what is the thing that you want that you know you can sell to somebody else later. That becomes money. Money is the thing that is the most liquid thing in an economy, right? Uh, today, that thing is the U.S. dollar for the most part, right? Even in parts of the world where the U.S. dollar isn't the official currency, if their currency is in trouble, they try to get their hands on the U.S. dollars because they know that those can, can be resold. Um, so Bitcoin is that thing in the cryptocurrency space. All cryptocurrencies are in direct competition with Bitcoin. And uh, Bitcoin is the only one that's being accumulated for the long term, right? People mm -hmm. are uh, passing it on to their children. Uh, they're, you know, they're looking at, at it as a long-term investment. Everything else is essentially being traded for Bitcoin. Uh, so, you know, yes, you can create more of these arbitrarily, but they don't have the same properties as Bitcoin, and that's why people aren't accumulating them. Right. I'm going to kick back on that. And, you know, as people know on my show, I am not a Bitcoin maximalist. I'm not an Ethereum maximalist. I am a knowledge maximalist. I search for the truth, if you will, in everything out there. And I want to know everything that is possible out there that that is being built and being developed because I think that makes me, you know, a better person and a better investor, if you will. And so I'm going to be, I'm going to kick back on deference on that is that, I would say that Bitcoin versus, say, Ethereum and some of the other protocols out there, there are very stark differences. Bitcoin, as we both agree, is the digital money out there. It is programmable money. It is a store value. It is the new entrance of digitalized gold, if you will. It is something that we all you know, participate in because we feel that there is accretion in value and because we're obviously being a part of something that is bigger than just us. And so that is one part. And then Ethereum and other protocols out there with their specific tokens, you know, in deference to them, you know, it seems that there are obviously technological differences at the core of the code. You know, with Bitcoin, you have the ability to do the things that you can do, but there are some limitations specifically done for security purposes in many Bitcoiners' minds. You do not have the ability, per se, to do something like a smart contract because it lacks state and because Bitcoiners really don't want that to be part of the L1 and not to mess with the security vectors, if you will. Ethereum, on the other hand, and some of the other protocols out there have the ability to have state and have the ability to have these you know, digital assets that can effectively, participants can stake those networks and make them work and then do the things that they can do. And so I think at the very core of the conversation is that there can be a world where different things can exist. You know, Bitcoin is a very, very purposeful, huge market uh, for those in the future. And then the other assets out there have their own purpose. And so, you know, um, do you disagree with that? 
I mean, clearly they can exist because they do exist. I don't disagree right. with that. I mean, there are literally 5,000 of them that exist. And you're right that there's a couple of them that have gained a decent prominence, including Ethereum. Mm. Now, to be clear, when I got into the space, I spent about a year studying all of this stuff. You know, I actually coded Ethereum smart contracts. I've written some Solidity code myself. Uh, I have traded cryptocurrencies of all kinds. Uh, I'm not coming at this as some kind of naive, you know, Bitcoin maximalist. I also spent a, a year uh, consulting for a company called Bloxroute. And Bloxroute is a cross-blockchain scalability platform where they actually create, uh, you know, uh, essentially like a, like a block distribution network. It's kind mm-hmm. of like what Bitcoin has with Fiber, uh, but they do it with, you know, for any blockchain. So it's not like I am pretending these things don't exist. They absolutely do exist. Uh, what I think is a little bit, I think people have misunderstood the, what Bitcoin was about and have thought that that same technology can be applied elsewhere. And it looks like it can be in, in small ways. Now, the problem you find, you, you find yourself in is that the, the blockchain scalability problem, which is exactly why Blockstart exists, mm-hmm. right? Um, the scalability problem, now Bitcoin has, has decided on a very specific trade-off, which is it's going to be extremely conservative in its ability to uh, to scale because that, uh, and what I mean by scale is like on the, on the first, on the base layer in terms of block mm-hmm. size and things like that, right? Um, what that does is it ensures decentralization. It ensures that um, we cannot corrupt the protocol by having it, you know, end up in running all in AOBS. Um, with other things, there are scalability problems. And, you know, what Blockstart has done, and these are smart people. These are, um, you know, PhDs from Cornell and, and Northwestern and stuff. And they've, they've studied these issues and all blockchains fail at some point, whether 10, you know, 10 times the speed, 100 times the speed, 1,000 times the speed. None of these blockchains will ever work on a base layer without something like Blockstar or without something like a second layer powering them, um, which is to say they need some amount of centralization if they want to be able to do this. I mean, look at Ethereum, right? Ethereum was working great for all these ICOs and now CryptoKitties came around and what happens? People can't raise money because there's somebody trading cats right? <laughs> That's a problem. And I know Ethereum 2.0 is coming. I've seen all the charts. I've seen all of the diagrams about the rocket science involved there. But look, yeah, as a computer scientist, I will tell you, <laughs> uh, uh, there's a fundamental problem when you need to transmit data from America to China and you need to do it quickly. So if you think there's some magical solution that solves that problem without it getting centralized, there isn't. Uh, now, is there a world where some of these things are used in, in uh, like corporate environments? Sure. Why, why can't five companies share database in AWS? They absolutely can, and they do. Um, and that's, you know, hosted blockchains in AWS are basically just hosted databases for these companies to use. I have no issues with that. Um, however, we have to recognize that things like Ethereum aren't just computing platforms, right? They're also monetary assets by virtue of the fact of being traded against Bitcoin. And for that reason, and going back to what I said, uh, around how money works um, and the money aggregates to the thing that is the most liquid, they're going to have a real problem when, when that value starts to flow to Bitcoin and, and it has been doing that. So, you know, do these things exist? Of course they exist. Do they have scalability problems? Absolutely. And they are unsolvable without centralization. So that's, that's the bottom line. Now, centralization is fine for application use. It's not okay for money. Uh, so that's what people will make a decision on, um, you know, over time, what, are they, what would they like to get paid in, Ethereum or Bitcoin? And, um, you know, well, I think we're seeing that play out right now. And again, I'm coming at this and the show and what we do is, again, highlighting, you know, the, the differences and the commonalities between all of these different projects and all these different digital assets. And so I agree, obviously, that, you know, there are things out there um, which are both 
very good and there are things that need to be improved. And, you know, obviously I've been very hard on people, especially when it comes to privacy, as it comes to scaling and some of the other, you know, issues around governance. And, you know, the, obviously you mentioned, you know, centralization and central authorities. Obviously the idea behind this is the re- removal of those rent seekers, if you will. And so the other question I'd like you to try to field kind of as we're just having a happy chat here, um, the other question I always get, and obviously, you know, the question I asked before about, you know, kind of dilution, I have answers to that too. But, you know, these are all questions I've already answered, but I'd love to get your opinions on them, is value. You know, time and time again, I run into a family office or an institutional investor and they say, well, why does Bitcoin have, why is Bitcoin at $8,900 USD right now? And obviously talking about the network and talking about, you know, the the purpose of it. I'm just curious if you have, when you run into those questions with other people out there that you're trying to educate, what do you usually say about why why Bitcoin has the current value that it may right right now? Well, I mean, the simple answer to that is supply and demand, right? (laughs) All things have a price uh, based on supply and demand. Um, But, you know, all joking aside, uh, why do people buy Bitcoin is really the question, right? Uh, And for that, you have to split Bitcoin up into lots of different use cases because it is very multifaceted, right? Um, a lot of people in America, for example, they don't really think that they're not really fearing capital controls. You know, maybe the rightly so, maybe not rightly so. But I'm not that worried that tomorrow the government's going to shut down ATMs and tell me I can withdraw $100 at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, now, if I was trying to transport large amounts of money out of the country, I'd probably be worried because there's already been, you know, uh, a lot of surveillance there. Um, but for the most part, Americans every day, they're, they're not worried about that. Now, if you live in Venezuela, for example... Um, and you want to escape and leave that country, there's no way you're, com- you're coming out with your cash. Okay, you need to have Bitcoin to do that. Secondly, if you have left Venezuela and you want to send money back home, you're not doing that using fiat either. You're going to have to use Bitcoin. Otherwise, you're paying government exchange rates, which are completely artificial. So you need to understand that just because we don't experience these things in America doesn't mean they don't exist elsewhere in the world. All over the world, Bitcoin isn't a luxury good. It's not a fun part of your portfolio. It's literally a survival tool. And it's, you know, it's going to become more and more so as we're seeing hyperinflationary events all over the world. Uh, and they will get worse in the next 10 years after what we've done with our economy. Uh, we're exporting our inflation to the rest of the world with all this money we're printing. So look at Lebanon. They have 60% inflation. They're setting their banks on fire. You think those people are getting out with anything but Bitcoin? You know, the people who are smart are accumulating Bitcoin. So that's what gives Bitcoin its value um, for uh, its use case as a freedom money. That's what I believe is a fundamental value. It's money. They can't be taken from you and it can't be inflated from you. Now, in America, it's hard to wrap your head around that because you don't think that those things are problems. But, you know, I, I would hope that Americans have started wising up to inflation after understanding what's been going on with, you know, healthcare, education, housing, the stock market. Uh, the government tells us we have 2% inflation, but it's patently false. Uh, they have a, a flexible way of measuring that, which makes that true for them and, and false for everybody else. So, you know, again, America's probably in one of the best probably one of the best countries in the world to be living in and one of the most, uh, you know, libertarian, but we still have a big problem with our money. Um, and if you don't think these problems are happening all over the world, you're just not paying attention. So people are buying Bitcoin because it has value to them. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if it has value to you, it has a value to them. And that's what gives it value. I agree with that. And so let's switch gears to Swan, where you are the CTO. So Swan makes Bitcoin investing easy by automatically every week, month, or paycheck, starting with as little as $5. So talk to us about what Swan is and the impetus behind it. 
Yeah, so Swan is, uh, like you said, it's a Bitcoin on-ramp. It's the best way to buy Bitcoin, it's simple. Um, we really believe that people should be investing in Bitcoin on a regular basis. Uh, the reason for that is because Bitcoin is very volatile. So if you buy it today and it goes down by 50%, you're going to try to sell it. You'll sell the bottom. Everybody's done that. Or uh, it'll go up in price tomorrow to 20000 and you'll buy the top. Uh, people have do that all the time, right? They, they make bad mistakes of trading because people are very bad at trading by and large. Uh, and the people on the other side of the trade are better than you. So you shouldn't be trading. What you should be doing uh, is basically putting a little bit of uh, money away into Bitcoin every week. And that's the best way to accumulate Bitcoin. So we really think that Bitcoin is a savings technology. And we believe that as our money goes fully digital, we're going to have to choose between a digital government-controlled money or a freedom money like Bitcoin. And over time, people are going to make that choice for themselves. And hopefully people will choose the freedom money. Um, <clears throat> but like I said, for some people around the world, this is a life and death thing. So they're choosing freedom money out of necessity. For most people in America, it's more like diversification of your portfolio, uh, getting out of the traditional financial system, which obviously is super entangled. There's no real diversification to be had there unless you're, you know, <laughs> you're like uh, doing like a long volatility type of portfolio against, you know, the stock market or something like that. But long story short, you need something outside of that, right? Uh, so Swan just connects to your bank account and you can buy as little as five bucks a week if you want or five bucks a month if you want. And uh, we buy Bitcoin for you automatically. And then we also have an automatic withdrawal feature that goes straight to your Bitcoin wallet. Or you can store it with us. We have a regulated custodian, which is basically like a bank uh, have, holding onto your Bitcoin. And that's free for your use if you like as well. And so let's talk about the kind of what I would call the under the hood. So I go there and I say, okay, I'm getting paid X amount of dollars every two weeks. I want to, I'm very similar to like a 401k where you would put, you know, a percentage of that into your 401k. I want to do that to Bitcoin. And so every few days, every few weeks, I mean, you get a ping from me saying, I want to buy X amount of dollars in Bitcoin. Then you have to go and get it. And so where does that come from? Where is the process where Swan has to go and allocate and find that Bitcoin? So yeah, what is so the process there? We don't, we don't ping you, actually. You just sign up for whatever that amount is. So let's say you say, I want to do you know, $50 a week, which is our most common uh, plan. So you just give us your bank account. Uh, you can do that by giving a, you know, a checking account number, or you can do that with a bank login using a technology called Plaid, which kind of connects straight to your bank. Uh, and once you've done that, then we're able to do an ACH poll, which is essentially us just charging your bank account like any other service. And uh, then that, that Bitcoin or that uh, US dollars are then transferred to our custodian, which executes the trade and buys the Bitcoin and holds, to the, hold on, holds onto the Bitcoin until you're ready to withdraw it to your own wallet. And um, one of the key things about Swan is we're not just an on-ramp like we let you buy Bitcoin. We also are an educational resource. So our team is consistent of uh, people from uh, who've written books on Bitcoin, such as myself. We have podcasters like Brady uh, Swenson, who's a, a host of Citizen Bitcoin. Uh -huh. uh, we have folks on our advisory board that are uh, authors and podcasters. So we put together lots of educational material, making sure that people understand that not, they're not just buying a number. They're actually buying into this new system and they need to understand what it is that they're getting. 
And so I think a lot of people, you know, especially on the retail side, uh, not on the non the institutional side, but more on the retail side, for the last few years, you know, Coinbase has been around since about 2012. And so for many, that was kind of one of the first entry points where if you wanted to go to get Bitcoin and you didn't want to, obviously, this is like 2014 or 15, you want to have to deal with Gox. And then when Bitcoin obviously started to get much more popular, and then we had obviously the whole retail bubble in 2017, you know, everyone started flooding and, you know, Coinbase got about 30 million plus, um, you know, kind of clients on their platform. I don't know what the number is today because they don't publish it anymore, but, you know, yeah, it's large. Um, If you could, for people that are evaluating, you know, this is, imagine you're talking to someone who's just starting to think about this and just starting to think about Bitcoin. And I'm not asking you to say, oh, you have to use us versus Coinbase, but just lay out some of the differences in terms of, you know, kind of fees and just the experience if you could. Yeah. So we definitely have way lower fees than Coinbase. And uh, that's for a reason, you know, Coinbase for them, they do have this feature. They have, uh, this is called dollar cost averaging, uh, right? So the ability to basically put in money over time. They do have this feature. They charge a lot more for it. Um, actually, at our, you know, if you're doing 50 bucks a week uh, and you prepay your annual fees with us, you're going to have a 75% savings over Coinbase's, Coinbase's fees. So their fees there are 3.98%. Ours are 0.99%. Um, the reason is, you know, and I don't think they're going to come down much in that. I, for them, this is not the core of their product. Coinbase is by and large a trading platform. And um, you know, Coinbase was how I got on board to Bitcoin in 2013. Uh, before, uh, you know, I, I kind of actually initially got in through Mt. Gox in 2011, but I sold all that Bitcoin at $2. So I learned my lesson trading there. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, Coinbase was great um, in, the, in the beginning, but now it's got a confusing message, right? If, if I'm going to send my friends to buy Bitcoin at Coinbase, the first thing they're hit with before they get to dollar cost averaging, which is, you know, point number 13 or 14 on their homepage, is, is you know, here's 30 coins and I want you to learn about these 30 coins. And of course, the allure of trading is very high you know, get rich quick, right? It's human psychology. People love this idea. And so, you know, what I say to people is if you're not day trading stocks, if you're not day trading stock options, you have no business whatsoever day trading cryptocurrency, like zero. Um, You don't understand what it is. Nobody even understands what Bitcoin is, let alone any of these other coins. You have no business being on the other side of a trade for a professional trader to to fleece you and take your money. Um, So Coinbase is no longer recommendable on ramp for me. I, I personally don't send anybody there. Um, I don't know anybody who is into Bitcoin that sends anybody to, Bit- to Coinbase anymore. Um, and the reason is it's just too confusing for newbies. We don't want them to fall into the trap of trading. We want them to understand Bitcoin and to start accumulating it. And that's you know, why we focus on Bitcoin. And that, you know, as a side effect, that makes our business very lean, right? We can spend uh, less on customer service because we only support one coin. We can make our user experience way, way smoother because we only have one coin. Um, we can lower our marketing acquisition costs because we're only talking about one thing. So everything becomes leaner. And where Coinbase might have you know, hundreds of employees, we might have 10. Um, that allows us to keep our fees lower and our process smoother for our customers. So that's really where we differentiate. And it's not just about the, the savings. Again, it's about the being easy for people to, to get on, on board with. And of course, Coinbase has a huge lead. But look at the number of stock brokerages, brokerages out there or the gold, number of gold dealers. There's always room for competition. Um, people always forget how early we are in Bitcoin because we've heard the word Bitcoin so much in, in the media. The reality is half a percent of the world has any Bitcoin. Uh, it might be as high as 3 or 5% in, the, in America, but you know, most of those people have it on Coinbase and they don't know what they bought. They have a number. Uh, how many people truly have over $100 worth of Bitcoin that, and they understand what they bought? 
that number is a fraction of a percent. So that's where we are with Bitcoin and, and any brokerage or any uh, on-ramp right now has a chance to take a huge portion of this market. And that's why we're here. And I just want to make sure that I understood this correctly. So I set up the kind of the routine periodic ACH kind of payments for say $25 or $50 worth of Bitcoin. And that could be sent to a cold wallet. Right. So everything is actually executed by our custodial backend. So they're mm-hmm. able to withdraw the U.S. dollars directly into their, you know, licensed and regulated U.S. dollar storage facility. Then they execute the trade and also store the Bitcoin in cold storage on their side. And then once you're ready to withdraw it, which could be immediate, or you can actually set up a threshold-based withdrawal. So you could say, you know, okay, I'm buying 25 bucks a week, but I'll withdraw it every time it reaches 100. Uh, so you could set up that withdrawal and then it'll go straight into your cold storage, hot storage, whatever kind of storage you got. We can, <laughs> As long as it has a Bitcoin address, we can withdraw to it. Got it. Obviously, we just had Jameson and Nick from Casa on again a few weeks ago. So the idea of key management is important, especially for people that are not necessarily buying hundreds and thousands of millions of dollars of Bitcoin. You know, for those that are more comfortable doing it for themselves, you know, key management becomes an issue. And then obviously the narrative of not your Bitcoin, not your not your keys, not your Bitcoin becomes, you know, something that many people out there obviously yell to the, the to the skies. And so wanted for those people that are interested in obviously looking at this as an option that you have the ability to use your own cold storage where they can obviously send the Bitcoin that you are mm-hmm. purchasing. Yeah, and we have an article coming out shortly about wallets that we recommend. Um, we've done a nice overview of all the different kinds of wallets. And obviously with, with wallets, you can kind of range from really simple you know, app on your phone to more complicated like multi-sig with hardware. Um, and really just depends on the amounts you're storing and how, how much time you're willing to devote to doing that. Uh, so we have an overview of all those different options. And we're going to be working with you know, companies like Casa to recommend their wallets uh, at the point of withdrawal so that newbies aren't just stuck there waiting, wondering what they're supposed to do with these magic numbers on their screen. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I would be remiss to not bring this up. And you probably know just by me saying remiss not to bring it up that the happening is happening. Oh, yeah. um, and, you know, I'm not asking for, we never do price predictions. I don't believe in that hokum. Good. Um, and so I'm just curious though, from your opinion, and obviously someone that has been in this space now for roughly eight odd years, you have seen a happening. And so um, any opinions on kind of what we might be experiencing over the next few days? Do you think that we're going to see you know, more, you know, kind of, you know, dare I say, is there going to be more attention to it? Or do you think it's just another event that's going to happen that's programmatically going to happen? Or do you think that this one is really special for some reason. <laughs> I don't think this one is special other than I think every Bitcoin cycle brings in more users just because there's more attention to it. Uh, now, I don't know if you've been paying attention to Google Trends, but this is a very interesting thing to look at. Just type in having or Bitcoin having into Google Trends. And the, <laughs> the, the peak has not even been reached. I mean, it's ramping up like crazy and it's way higher than it was in the prior having. So um, that's interesting, right? So we see all this attention happening in the last having, um, remember after the last having, the price went up to $20,000, right? So that wasn't like on the day of the having, it took, uh, what, a year, two years almost? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something like that. So I'm expecting if people remember that and now they're searching for it again and they're being re-educated, uh, I am expecting more interest in Bitcoin this time around. I think people have seen what it can do. And so they're more aware of that. Uh, I can tell you anecdotally, just from my, the, my circle of friends, you know, I'm 
I'm the Bitcoin guy in my circle of friends. Most of them don't care about Bitcoin. <laughs> I've been <laughs> talking their ear off about Bitcoin forever. Uh, some of them have bought it. Some of them have forgotten about it. But um, last year, Bitcoin went from three and a half thousand to twelve thousand, and absolutely nobody blinked an eye, um, and nobody even knew. Now, what I found different is that when the coronavirus hit and when the market started tanking and everything was just you know just on fire, that's when people started coming back to me and saying, "Should I be buying Bitcoin right now?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "Oh, this is interesting. Why are you asking me now?" And Bitcoin it was I think it's six thousand something at that time because it had just crashed, right? Mm-hmm. So I said, why are you asking me now? And it's like, people are just starting to wake up to um, that something's up with the monetary system. Like something is happening right now in this moment of time and they're Mm -hmm. seeing it in their eyes, which they didn't see a year ago, even though the price was doing way more interesting things. So I think we are going to see more interest just because of that. We, We are living in a very interesting macro environment where you know pretty much every currency on the planet is easing in a way that it's never been eased. We're going to print more money than we've ever printed in our lifetimes. And that's going to draw people to Bitcoin as they start ans- asking questions about what that means. I completely agree. And that's something that obviously I've been talking about with many people out there with the proactive versus reactive. We have been reactive to this virus and now we have our pants down you know, to our ankles. And so we are now you know, spending trillions of dollars. There's been multiple trillion dollar packages um, and there's going to be more in the horizon than the peers because some of the industries out there that have been basically going bankrupt, like the airliners. Um, and very interesting enough, yesterday the Fed announced that they were doing a three billion dollar borrowing program. Three trillion. Three, three trillion. trillion. Sorry, three yeah. trillion. That's three right. Three trillion. Yeah, it's three a, trillion. It's unfathomable. Numbers are unfathomable to like regular human beings. Yep. And so if you don't know what borrowing means, borrowing borrowing means that someone is going to have to pay interest on that. And that's going to be me and you and everyone else listening to this, that, you know, we'll be paying for this bill for years and generations to come. And that will have an adverse effect, in my opinion, and many others out there on the U.S. dollar. And so I think you are correct that the macro backdrop has caused a lot of people to take heed into what Bitcoin is as a asset that is outside of the traditional financial system. Um, you know, what many people have talked about, the idea of correlation to public equity is in por- correlation to oil and gold. To me and to others out there, it is an asset that is untethered. It is decoupled uh, from the financial system. And that is why it makes it interesting. I will caveat that with one thing is that Bitcoin is still very small compared to uh, some of these traditional, you know, financial, yep. like the size of the financial system. You know, for $160 billion, it's like nothing. So it doesn't take that much money to move the Bitcoin market. And so to talk about it being, you know, correlated or uncorrelated is just a little early. I think if we look at its fundamentals, like what is it fundamentally? It is fundamentally uncorrelated because it doesn't know anything about the outside world, right? Uh, it's no, nobody influences its monetary policy. Um, whereas what's happening in the financial system, that's you know, a bunch of people pressing buttons and creating more money. So um, it will be uncorrelated. It's just a question of when. And uh, you know, as it grows bigger and bigger and bigger, it will be, have, have a mind of its own. It won't really be dominated by a few players with you know, big, deep pockets. Uh, because at 160 billion, it's really just it's just too small to be talking about these kinds of things. And I really hated when in the media, you know, the Bitcoin drops at the same day as the stock market, and everybody's like, "Oh my God, it's not cor-, you know, it's correlated now." Mm-hmm. You know, it's <laughs> we're experiencing the worst financial like disaster of uh, of the century. So yeah, I mean, people are going to sell Bitcoin. Uh, that happens. Yeah, yep. and we've talked about that on the show. Obviously, you know, when the markets dropped the way that they did, people 
who were over-levered to the market and had to sell any liquid asset they could to cover their margin. Obviously, we talked a lot about that before, so I agree with you. And you know, what we'd like to do is where can people find more about Swan? How can they get in touch with you? Feel free to drop them a note here. Sure, yeah. So you can get Swan at swanbitcoin.com, swan like the bird. And uh, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is SKWP, which is pronounced scoop, SKWP. And you can get my book at inventingbitcoin.com. And uh, it just came out in Audible. So you can get it on audiobook uh, narrated by Guy Swan. It's really great. So um, yeah, get that book for your friends. Even if you know about uh, Bitcoin, it's a good way to educate your friends. It's very short. Awesome. Uh, and yeah, hope to see you on the other side and as a customer of Swan and you know, reach out to our customer service and we'll, we're happy to chat. So this was Jan Pritzker, the CTO of Swan Bitcoin and also a author of an amazing book, Inventing Bitcoin. And so thank you, Jan, for joining us on Baselayer today and we'll be catching up with you soon. Take care. It was great. Thank you. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Baselayer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space in the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, market commentary, videos, and more.